This is an SM Media production. Hi folks and welcome to the latest episode of Chronicle, the Rangers journey right here on SM Media. I'm Scott Pike. it's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always. We are now at the penultimate episode, the episode we've been trying to do for weeks and we've, we've finally got there. We do have obviously, this is going to be a recap, this is going to be a recap where we look back at the past 18 episodes, we talk about the big kind of takeaways we've had from the whole journey and how the how the future can be different, how we can look towards a brighter and prosperous dawn at the end of a what was a pretty weird kind of roller coaster kind of thing as well. And to join me in this part of the journey, it's a pleasure to welcome Craig Ray. Craig, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Hi, mate. It's an absolute pleasure myself. Um, as I say, good to good to be on finally. So I'm looking forward to it. It's this is a weird one because we we kind of don't really know how how this is going to turn out. We've we've thought about like how we how do we wrap a series like this up when you've you went through so many different eras of the club. We went from winning nothing to being dom- dominating in the eighties and nineties to then a bit of turmoil towards the kind of the twenty first century and then getting the the slower recovery back to winning titles. It's it is. It's it's exactly that. It's a roller coaster, Craig. It's it's so much. I mean, going through it for eighteen episodes, every every big deal, every big moment in the club's history, on and off the park in those kind of twenty three years. There's there is a lot to unpack. There absolutely is. I mean, um, it's definitely Hollywood blockbuster style types following Rangers into it. I mean, um. You wouldn't change it. You definitely wouldn't change it. But no, I'm 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 delighted to be here and, and looking forward to getting to getting stuck in. It'll certainly be a good one, mate. You said it there about obviously being a Hollywood blockbuster. You could I mean you could probably Steven Spielberg would probably look at that script and think that can't have happened in real life, but it has and it has. It's just there's so much to unpack. I mean, we when we kinda of started, we obviously done done the first two episodes talking about the the kind of need for a revolution, the need for a new guy to come in and and really kind of take the club forward. And, and Era Sunis had obviously come in in 86 and there was that complete shift in terms of, obviously Sunis was a big, big character and the big signings that came in. It just all seemed to fit perfectly and the foundations were laid for, for Murray's arrival in 88 and Sunis was a big, big player in that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if you look at Sunis and Murray sort of side side by side I think they're, they're very very similar characters and I think characters as opposed to persons maybe the right word to use yeah. because I think you know I'm not I'm not trying to dehumanise them in any way at all but I mean um, you know you look at the stature of someone like Sunis and the stature of someone like David Murray who at the time was you know he was certainly on the verge of a knight who'd have not already been made a knight um, I think there were stories of him he had the confidence he would go up to Joanna Lumley at you know mm-hmm. Gala balls and stuff like that, and ask her out. Um, so I mean, the guy had a gallusness about him, and I think it's quite clear that that Graham Sunis had that gallusness as well. And I think if when you look at Sunis, um, not just on the pitch, what he done with Rangers, but off it as well, with obviously signing a a Mo Johnson, and I think um, probably changing the well, it did it change change the landscape of Scottish football has arrived, and then the the subsequent um, Walter Smith era, which obviously Graham soon has had a, a massive impact on bringing bringing water to the club. So, um, I think if you look at them side by side, they're they're very very similar characters. The thing with Murray is obviously, and we'll, when we go into Murray and as a whole, when we've done it so many times, is there is a difference between nineteen eighty eight David Murray and two thousand and eight David Murray. They're two completely different people. When it it comes, it does come in. It it doesn't come in and think this is a. It, it doesn't come into Rangers to make a fortune. There's a lot of business owners go into a place. They go in usually to make money, and a lot of pl- the, the people after David Murray Rangers, their their whole objective was to leave with quite a tidy profit, and I'm sure a lot of them did. And 
I don't think Murray ever. Well, we we kind of know now. David Murray never. He didn't put his own money in, mm-hmm. but he didn't take his own money. He didn't take any money out. He certainly had his fun in the first year as well. But I find it very interesting that he comes in. He comes in because he wants to be a a big player in yeah. Scottish society. He could. He could. I mean, make the biggest metals deal in the world. It's not going to get you in the front page of mm-hmm. the Daily Record or the Sun. The taking over Rangers is going to do that and that that's the whole Murray MO for for when he takes over. He comes in in 1988 because he wants to be a player on the Scottish stage and at the time there's no better place to do that than Ibrox. Things are going well as the soonest revolution's in full effect. The club are getting getting their finger out. There's it all kind of see it as a as a perfect storm. Everybody involved is happy at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean um, and as a football fan yourself, you, you you know people of that era would look back at that time and think, "Wow, things are great." We're obviously winning leagues. We've got soon as here we're signing. You know, obviously after what happened with Hillsborough, you know, mm-hmm. Chris Woods, Terry Butchers, and whatnot, because English clubs couldn't couldn't play in Europe. And I yeah. I kind of wonder maybe sometimes if you know, obviously with the knowledge that English clubs were going to get banned from Europe and stuff like that, if maybe David Murray would have been looking to go down south at some point, because I think. Um, there might have been I don't know if there was talk about him going to United or he certainly might have been an Air United fan he was definitely um, he was definitely looking to, to move into Air United and I think I think it was soonest that said listen that you can come you can go to Ibrox the, the opportunities there the Lawrence Marlborough team they, they were more I think people viewed them as custodians I don't think they were ever wanting to make it a long term thing at the club obviously they've been there there since the 70s but I think they were looking to go abroad and as I say Murray is and the thing that the kind of conclusion of the overall thing is that Murray wasn't a fan of Rangers Mm -hmm. and that is a play in his decisions a lot later on but it all fits he's he's wanting to become a bigger player he's got the guy alongside him he's friendly with Sunis Sunis can introduce him it's it's all done relatively quick actually he does it pretty quick and he's at the helm and not even two years after he's in, he's having he's he's completely changed the culture. He's brought the, the Johnson signing that we touched on, that completely transforms the culture in Scottish football because that Murray and Sunis, both of them, they had to do that. And they mm-hmm. they absolutely had to change the culture. That they were the two guys that did that. Yeah, absolutely. And I you know, I, I think Forgetting the sort of maybe culture within Rangers fans and whatnot, I think it maybe changed the the culture and what wider Scottish society sort of viewed Rangers because if you look at the sort of next nine ten years, you know Murray in the media, you know well <laughs> hand in hand. I mean, do you know what I mean? It's like a- anything he said, it would be gospel to the media. They would love it. They would, you know, um. Oh, the, the the succulent lamb culture, I believe they they yeah. might have called it back in the day. Um, but like it was, and as I say, it's like Murray as well. When you when you you think about it, um, he was probably one of the first, if not the first, of in Britain anyway. Your sort of modern football owners where mm-hmm. you don't really think of the club, but you think of the owner. You look at Abramovich at Chelsea, Daniel Levy at Spurs, um the Glazers at Man United and stuff like that. Like these people want to be seen as the club itself. Um and ironically enough, all these people never actually seem to be fans of the club when coming in. They just see like a big sort of vanity project. Um and I think at the end of the day, unfortunately for, for Rangers down the line, um that's what it was for David Murray. I mean for all the success that you can have with something like David Murray, I think the fact that he didn't support the club growing up I think as you touched on earlier Scott that had that had an impact on, on his decision making in the future and it's kind of like you can when you're not emotionally invested as opposed to well he wasn't even financially invested was he not properly but um, when you don't have that emotional investment into something it can work well for a while and maybe you can have the greatest and the highest of highs but eventually you're going to have the lowest of the lows which is exactly what happened yeah, I think as well, like when he when he comes in, he he's maybe not a fan, he's maybe not someday I, I don't imagine David Murray going to a and sitting in the Loudon Tavern like before a game, before he took over like that. I can imagine him when he got there, like everything becoming he, becoming a fan because 
on-field success meant he was successful. That's, but it's when that begins to begins to change when he he obviously has the ambition for Europe, and I think Europe's a big part of of his overall and what he wants to do. He wants to he wants to be synonymous with the with the club. He, I find it very similar to Jack Walker at Blackburn. Jack mm-hmm. Jack Walker later on, obviously a local a local man. A local businessman made good. Like he goes into Blackburn, he puts a lot of his own money in, he completely transforms the club's fortune, wins a title. I mean, obviously passes away, and there's a street named after him in at Ewood Park. I think Murray wanted that. I think Murray wanted the the thing similar to maybe similar to a Jack Walker, similar to maybe like a maybe a Berlusconi is a bad example, but I think there was that thing of. He wanted to go further in the world. He wanted Rangers to be a a transfer, maybe maybe into politics. I don't know. Probably David Murray, I would imagine, would be the only person that would know that. But that kind of idea that this this Rangers project would transform him into top of Scottish culture, the front page of the papers, eventually, eventually a knighthood, which he would go on to get and things like that. It was ideal for him. It's when that begins to change, when it stops, when it the fun runs out, and we speak about that so often. When it became less about a, a leisure pursuit and more about trying to just get through there every week, and that was the big thing with Murray. You could see that change in him. You could see the guy who would be every he would be on the season review DVDs. He would be answering Q and As in the Rangers news. He would be doing everything. He was a it was a it was a PR guy for the club, and that's something mm-hmm. I've got now. Like with the club, they don't have a good PR system. David Murray was the Rangers PR for years. He was, he had his journalists. I think we need to touch on that as well. He certainly gave sweeties to a lot of the those guys in the mm-hmm. papers who would write good things about him, and that it did work. And we we'll got we've we'll, we went through that as well with a great episode with Ian King from used to write for Sunday Mail, who was telling who would tell us about the. What you would get offered and things like that. you would you would get. You mean you know what I mean? If, if you're sitting working at a newspaper and the owner of Rangers is telling you, like, "Come to my vineyard in France, <laughs> and I'll give you all these exclusives," you're you're not turning it down. You're you'd be crazy. You know what I mean? And and when mm-hmm. when the club are so successful and they do sell papers back then, papers did sell. And mm-hmm. a six page interview with David Murray that was selling you a week's worth of papers. No, exactly. I, f- I think um, it's interesting as well. You touched on the sort of being the PR arrangers and the face arrangers. I, f- I find it interesting that it always seemed to be kind of as soon as those bad times hit, it was nowhere to be seen, really. Do you know mm. what I mean? He sort of gave up. I know, obviously, um, new chairman and, and whatnot were installed sort of the early sort of 2000s. That's when, you know, a lot of stuff was trying to, was sort of transpiring, a lot of the cost cutting measures under. Um, Alan McLeish was happening um, and it's like it's almost as if Murray only wanted to be attached to the, the good stuff that was happening yeah, with Rangers you know nine totally, in a row I think that's totally advocate right. but then as soon as you know you're, um, you're losing Barry Ferguson the bank's coming in and taking control with the club I don't want to be part of that I'll let somebody else deal with that um, but the, the thing with David Murray is such an interesting character because I, as you again touched on Nell Scott like when it it wasn't you know about him sort of even within Scottish society, it was him within a sort of wider yeah. European and even world. I would go as far as worldwide mm-hmm. because you know if you think about it, um, in a sense, David Murray was kind of a visionary, but he never actually acted out. If that kind of makes sense, because he he was the one that was talking about, oh, there's going to be a European Super yeah. League. You know, the stuff that everyone was protesting about a couple of years ago, and let's face it, something to that effect probably will end up happening. David Murray was talking about this 30-odd years ago. Um, you know, even stuff like expanding Ibrox and stuff like that, Murray Park at the time, um, state-of-the-art training facility, the best in Scotland, possibly the best in Britain, um, mm-hmm. when it was built at the time. Um, and, you know, that that European sort of craving, that European success, and, and obviously it nearly happened in the early 90s, but I think, you know, the later failures of that team in Europe, I think, maybe caused Murray to panic a wee bit, as if, you know, he kind of knows that he's he's sort of losing what he once had, and then 
it just goes into crazy stuff under Advocat. And I'm not even talking about the players that weren't brought in. I'm talking about the facts that the likes of Ronaldo is offered basically come up and play on a Tuesday night <laughs> and govern. Like, that is, that's something you wouldn't even see now in football. Do you know what I mean? Like, can you imagine going to, I don't know, um, Mo Salah or somebody like that saying, ah, you can just play the Champions League games at Ibrox? Like, it's... It just wouldn't happen nowadays, but no. that's kind of what David Murray was. Like. He obviously had that, you know, helped with the formation of the Champions League Rangers, one of the the sort of um, the starting clubs in it. He felt that he was in that sort of yeah, no. European elite with the likes of Bernard Tapu and whatnot. Um, he thought, you know, and like even when Rangers were playing Marseille, you kind of see like the you know the pictures and stuff like that of Murray and Tapu together, as if Murray's kind of saying, ah, you know, I've I've made it here, and. It's that thing as well of just wanting to be a, a visionary. And he, he did. He, he, nine in a row. When you look at nine in a row, it's domestic success. And it is. It's, I mean, David Murray, I, I've never spoke to David Murray. I've never met David Murray. But I can imagine if you'd asked David Murray about his time at Rangers, he would talk about nine in a row. He would be, I'm mm-hmm. nine in a row was all me. Gaz and Loudrop was all me. And yeah, you can say, like, Rangers were fine in that period he was I mean they, obviously there, there wasn't as much of the borrowing going on as we would we would see later on but he's do you know what I mean he's, he's bringing the players in the club are doing the 92-93 I think is just a a starter for the European ambition the club have that's that's a, that's an early taster and then obviously from then on in it's Rangers want to win the European Cup and was that realistic I, I, I think 1992-93 is their best chance because it, the Champions League that season it's the first year of the, the Champions League it does expand from there and it becomes even harder for a team like Rangers 1992-1993 is the best chance for that team to win and Walter I think Walter obviously pays the price later on in his first spell with the European results but that's a massive, massive season for the club. Domestic treble, that amazing European run. Rangers don't lose a game in that European competition and don't make the final when it's... We know, obviously, now it's down to some shenanigans, shall we say, but it's that does excite the, excited the supporters. The supporters wanted more. I can only imagine what David Murray wanted out of that. No, exactly. And that, you know, touched on there, the, the sort of Marseille game, you know, kind of in cahoots, so to speak, with, with Bernard Tappy. Um, you know, and it's just, as you say, it kind of did seem like at the time a, a starter, and especially with Murray only being in the job for yeah. a few years, you know, he'd obviously had his domestic success, everything was going well, and then it just, you know, he's thinking, yeah, I've, I've, you know, helped with the formation of the Champions League, and in this first season, my club has came you know, within an inch of the final. And let's face it, should have at least got the chance to play that final. Yeah. Obviously, you're coming up against incredible what, AC Milan side in the final. But I think we all that happened, Rangers should should have at least got to that final. Um, but he's obviously fine at the time. I mean, it can only get better in terms of sort of global and European stature. But as you say, it's that was sort of that. And the Premier League had only started a couple of years earlier. That was... Uh, sort of planting the seeds for what is football now, modern football in terms of the TV money, sponsorships, player wages and stuff like that. And over the next few years, it just completely, the money in football just blows out of proportion to a point where David Murray becomes, you know, just irrelevant compared to these other owners in football. And I think that's yeah. something that he, he probably couldn't take. It couldn't happen, yeah, it, you you can't handle, and I think this is it. You can't handle when the world's going too fast for you and things like. I mean, when David Murray comes in, Rangers are matching PSG. Like Rangers could probably go to PSG and Bayern Munich and will probably get their best player. They probably could. They could go and probably nick the manager if they really wanted to. By that period, like the butchers and the woods and that kind of that kind of player is over. It, it, it is over and Gaz and Loudrop are the two that's why we think about them so highly it's because they're the two gems in that a lot mm-hmm. of Rangers signings at that point like a second rate and it's not nice mm-hmm. to say that there's a, there's a few big players in there that come through but you look at the overall players Rangers bring in even, even under Advocat 
they're not going to get you to that next European level. Re- tactically, I don't think. I, I think Walter obviously learns later on in his second spell, which we'll talk about. At that point, Rangers are not tactically aware to be a big force in Europe. They, you know, what I mean, I don't think the three foreigners rule helps as well, but it all seems to. But I think Murray at that point he was obviously looking towards Europe. Now with David Murray. He would look back as the domestic success as being the ultimate success of his tenure, and that's the difference. Yeah, I think I think his legacy is different from what what he would envisage it being at the start. Yeah. Um, still, in terms of on the pitch, I mean, it's not it's not the worst legacy to leave behind on the pitch. You know, it's that's that's the best Rangers team of all time, and I would argue the best team that Scottish football's ever seen. I mean, obviously we know that Celtic did win the European Cup, but I think that that. Rangers 11 is better than that Celtic 11 that's just my opinion I think you know maybe if, if Rangers only had to play about four games in 1967 I think that team would have probably won the European Cup but, <laughs> um, you know it's it, it is and you know you made the point there I think it was a great point that I was actually thinking of the players that we brought in under Advocate great players you know you have the Boers and Newmans and Amaris and blah 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 great players for Rangers amazing but you know, in European football as a whole, still a good level, you know, but not the level that's going to win you the Champions League, not going to get you into the, you know, the, the quarters, the semis, yeah, the finals. Think, a big thing I wanted to kind of touch on, and this was something I kind of I thought about for a while, you look at 1998-99, and that's yeah, the first summer under Avocat, probably, I suppose to a lot of people, it's probably the most exciting time to be a Rangers fan ever, because there was new players coming in every day, but Newman and Van Bronckhorst are the kind of two big buys in that, probably about five million each. They're about 40 and 45th out of the kind of transfers that summer in mm-hmm. terms of like European football. And those are massive signings. You think of that, five and a half million in 1998 is a lot of money. That's, I mean... Yeah. I think it was the world record about 50 million at the yeah, time, something like that. Million, so that's yeah. like a third of the world record. And you, and, but it's still not enough. And... I think I, I kind of want to touch on all these managers at the end because I think there's a I think there's a theme with the managers, but nine in a row, obviously ten in a row doesn't happen. Advocate's his project. Advocate is what he's been wanting to do. Nine, the the domestic that nine in a row had just taken over everything, and then when that when that had finished, when that whole era had finished, Murray had the the opportunity then to bring it to to do the European thing and make himself make the club bigger in Europe. Do you know what I mean? Play in that big stage mm-hmm. in the pursuit of Advocat. It, it's not really a pursuit because Advocat applies for the job, but David Murray loved that idea of bringing in a European manager. The big word was obviously discipline that team by the the Smith team by 98 were completely out of control. And mm-hmm. I mean, Smith obviously learns from that later on. But Advocat was, it was probably perfect for that that time and the first two seasons of that time are on the park there are five trophies out of six the club are doing really well in Europe it then starts this wee little change that we see and this overreaching that I think we see at this point yeah I agree I think I, I, I maybe try and sum it up as maybe Murray's three rolls of the dice it's like his first role was when he came in you know, then appoint Walter Smith nine in a row, the European sort of early European success. And then I think he kinda realizes eventually after ninety three, maybe a few years after that, that it's not as, you know, easy as maybe he thought it was going to be. Then he second roll the dice as advocate mm. and this is when we start to see the debt and stuff like that just spiral out of control and it, you know He's just chasing something that's completely um, just not going to happen. And then I'm not going to say McLeish was his third roll of the dice because I think, as I say, he wasn't I think, really... I think Le Guin's Le Guin, third yeah, dice, yeah. I was going to say that because I, I think that summer, I know we'll touch on it a wee bit later on, there was a weird feeling about the club. There was a really exciting feeling about the club. I remember at the time, you know... I think, that's, when, his, I think that's his last, like, I know, yeah. his, his last pursuit of, yeah. pursuit of perfection, I think, is the word. Yeah, because, you know, Le Guin's came in, he's won excellent league titles in a row at Lyon, he's built a great team there that were getting to quarter-final, semi-finals of the Champions League. Um, even off the park, I mean, certainly not, you know, 
in real terms, obviously, but visually, from a PR point of view, there was a big deal with JJB Sports. It was a big getting, you know, lots of talk. If you remember as well, the stuff about the Las Vegas Sands, mm -hmm. the redevelopment of Ibrox, oh, yeah. exactly. And, you know, just completely, when you look back on it with hindsight, completely unrealistic expectations, but it's like, you've got these three sort of, uh, these two events happening alongside Paul Gwen coming in. So you're thinking as a time, I remember, you know, older people around me, I would only have been about nine or ten at the time when Leguin came in, but people are saying, this is really, really exciting, you know, we're going to, Ibrox is going to get bigger, we're signing, you know, one of the best, if not the best, hot property in European football at the time, um, an exciting new kit at the time, the biggest kit deal in Scottish football mm -hmm. history, I think, or the biggest retail deal, um, and then you just realise eventually, probably after a couple of years, um, when it turns out that the bank's been controlling the club basically that it was all pretty much a smokescreen and that none of it was actually true. Before obviously the the kind of I think Luke Wen's a really interesting time in, in this whole journey and it was I mean it took an episode itself that that six months there's just so much to get into but but the but the millennium there's a lot of change. Rangers are Rangers are sitting with do you know what I mean? Dominant, dominating Scottish football. I mean that Orangey day. Do you remember that? Like the, mm. you could, you thought this would that would go on for forever. And the summer of two thousand, I think, is the most pivotal time in the club because he has obviously signed the bill for Advocat to bring in a lot of players. The club, the the team, really said the wage bill is out of control. But there's a there's a thing there that the the club, the team's in a really good place. Rangers are still in a decent place financially. There's a lot of borrowing going on, but the club aren't really... It's not like it's out of control. It's not like they're, they're, they're having to eventually kind of rip the squad up and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's that complete... I think two arrogant guys, to be honest. Murray and Advocat, the summer of 2000, the ridiculous spending and players that they didn't need. They didn't, mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of players that come in and obviously Celtic win the treble under a nail, and it just, I think that's reckoning just comes in that one season. The wage bill is out of control. There's players there that are, like Marco Negri still in the wage bill. The way that I think Rangers are just 35 players in that season. That is mental. I don't keep, that's, that, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, and the, the era of big squads, that's still not acceptable. 35 players in your, do you know what I mean? And that is the turning point, because then by that point, Murray has went from completely having control to being out of control because he, him and Advocat at that point, they are just throwing anything at the wall. The spend is ridiculous. They're buying players, they buy Marcus Gale for play him for four <laughs> games and then sell him because they don't want him. It's just that level of recklessness at that point. And that, that is the big turning point because by the summer of 2001, he has the chance. He he could easily cut the cloth. He could easily would the fact the fans wouldn't have probably accepted it at first, but eventually they would have went right. We need to we see what's going on. If Murray had just and that's the thing you said it earlier on when when things were good you would hear David Murray all the time. When things weren't good, you wouldn't hear anything. Exactly, I think yeah. um, certainly in that that summer it's it's a strange one because as you said there you know it seemed to just be players that you didn't need that were coming in you know mm -hmm. um obviously you had guys came in that would eventually do well for the club you know your Rixons, loving crans de boer um kenny miller eventually <laughs> would uh, prove his worth about seven well no more than seven maybe eight or nine years down the line um but you know, just that, I think you, the, the right word was used there, just recklessness, you know, and for for that to happen, for this Rangers team, yeah, for this Rangers team to go from what they were, winning five trophies out of six, you know, doing pretty well in a tough Champions League, to then spending all that money in that summer and then losing a treble, not even managing to win a cup, I mean, it's ridiculous, and, and again, it's not a bad Rangers team, it's not even bad players, it's good players that they've brought in, you know, yeah. but it's just, I think maybe sometimes you can, you can probably think you're a wee bit better than what you think you are, and I think arrogance is another word that you, hubris, you use there. Well. It's hubris, it's total hubris, it's just, yeah, that's... absolutely, it's kind of like, we, you know, we've, we've done this before, we can, 
we can we can do it again. We can we can do it even more. But I think one thing as well that you need to remember is at that time you're dealing with a Celtic team who are now starting to get a grip, not yeah. just as a team on the pitch, but as a club. Um, you know, obviously they had Fergus McCann come in and, and sort of save them the in the 90s and. Um, it would have been round about this point, I believe, that Dermot Desmond, when I yeah. came in, and he was obviously trying to put the club on a, you know, a reasonable financial footing, and he he supported Martin O'Neill when he when he came in, you know, he gave him money to spend, you know, and look, Rangers did spend money at the time. At the time, Celtic spent money as well. Um, and I think certainly from a a fan's perspective, when you look back on it, it it was grown into a, you know possibly a bit of a, a new golden era in Scottish football because when, when you think about it you know the next couple of years Rangers um, you know but as I say we've done okay in the Champions League Celtic get to the UEFA Cup final in Seville you've got a point there where you've got two teams in Rangers and Celtic who are in the Champions League every year pretty much mm-hmm. um, or if not they're, they're doing okay in the UEFA Cup at least um Obviously, Rangers get to Manchester five years after that. So, on the pitch, anyway, in terms of Scottish football, it's looking quite yeah. decent from a fan's point of view. But, and again, this is, you know, as you say, hubris, and that actually, I think, seeps into the rest of Scottish football because you see, at that time, the likes of Dundee, Livingston, just spend money that they couldn't they couldn't keep up with because they were, they were trying to keep up with Rangers and Celtic, which is just completely unrealistic. Yeah. And then in 2001, I think Murray plants the the grenade that will explode at a later date. The, the easy thing to do here would have been to cut cloth accordingly, put some of your own money in potentially to, to fix your situation, to when everything's got out, when you've, you've, you've put too much of your, you put too much of your capital on the line and instead of that, he goes to he looks for a solution and a guy comes to him with one called an employee benefit trust. Now, the myth that employee benefit trusts were illegal, they were not illegal when David Murray signed yeah. them, signed to agree to use them in 2001. The way they were run, I don't know if that's that's maybe a, a can of worms that I think we, we don't open at this point, but they weren't run well. That's certainly agree. Well, I think we'll certainly both agree on that. They will not run well at all. But he plants a, a grenade because tax law is the weirdest law in the world. Because if they decide tomorrow that it's illegal, if the tax man decides tomorrow it's illegal to, to do podcasts, mm. they could go back and fine us for every podcast we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. That's the way tax works, they go after you, no matter, they go after you, they backlog everything. David Murray, the smart businessman, had to know that. He had to know what I'm doing here could potentially explode down the line. Was it just a quick fix? Was it just hoping that this would all blow over by the time? Because I, I don't think at this point he's thinking, I'm going to set the club towards a, an iceberg. I think at this point he's just looking for something just to calm the storm. Yeah, I think um maybe desperation might be yes. a, a sort of a better a better way to describe it because as I as I mentioned earlier, this is basically the first time in his tenure that you've got, you know, a good Celtic team there. Obviously they'd stopped ten in a row, but you know, that was kind of a one hit wonder, that Celtic team. You know, mm. they came in, stopped ten in a row, then Advocate came in and things continued as they were during the nineties. The, the famous thing about that is obviously the day after Wim Jansen wins the league. Fergus McCann says, "I was going to sack him anyway." Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like that, there's still this comedy side of Celtic at this point. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And that exactly, that, and it's just yeah. Like as I say, this is the first time that there's you know a proper consistent challenge for Murray, and I think in terms of the European stuff now, I think we're we're getting to the point now in Europe where you're like Rangers are not going to be anywhere near you know, the yeah. the the pinnacles of, of what it was in nineteen ninety three, you know. We're now getting into the stage where it's, you know, group stages trying to get into the last sixteen. I think back then it would have been a second group stage. But you know what you know what I mean? Like try and get yeah. into the latter stages. Um maybe get a good run in the UEFA Cup, which in fairness Rangers done okay in the UEFA Cup that year. Um <coughs> but, you know 
as I say, just that, that desperation. And one thing, I don't think this ever crossed his mind because of the type of person that he is, but what even about just selling up? Because if you think about it from a, a Rangers fan's point of view, if David Murray decided to sell, even at that time, what would his legacy have been? Well, it would have been nine in a row, and that's it. Um, we, would, say, uh, we would probably have a David Murray way. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, even after obviously Celtic win a treble and stuff like that, kind of maybe just say, oh, do you know what? I've maybe I've had my fun here. You know, the game's up. Um, I'll pass it on to someone. You know that can come in and and do a decent job and you know have the club in safe hands. But again, it's this this ego that the guy's got that just. Yeah. He just wants more, and he doesn't know when he's beaten. He doesn't know when to give up. And I think, I mean, I'm not going to name specific people here, but I think if you look at people, certain people in history, they just don't know when to give up. Mm-hmm. And eventually, when they do give up, it's it's too late. And that, as you mentioned, that grenade's already exploded. I think he was a risk taker. I think he was a. I think yeah, he was absolutely. someone who would. I think he always thought that something would come along, whether it was the, the proposed moved to England or something like that, he would find a, a gem in the transfer market, he would find a bargain and it would turn out to be a, a record transfer. I, I think he always thought some of the TV money, Rangers and Celtic would have their own TV deal and things like that. I think he always thought something would turn up and things would calm down. And He just probably never envisaged how sort of timpot the rest of Scottish football was when the, it comes yeah. to signing big TV deals. Yeah, exactly. The world had changed round about him and he, he couldn't, get out of that he couldn't get out of the bubble he was in he thought he did th- he, I think he thought that it would that Rangers would just something would happen something would change his fortune but football changed so much and the 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 introduction of Sky and the English TV the Bosman ruling as well with things like that mm-hmm. the, the the owner doesn't have the control of the players compared to what they did when even Murray came in he couldn't play in that field anymore and from two thousand one onwards, he just because he he just becomes this. He's just looking for something to turn up for him. He's just looking for a a quick fix. McLeish, what I I think Alan McLeish is a really underrated Rangers manager, but oh, there is absolutely. no there is no doubt in my mind that that is it's a step that he's a step down from advocate because it's it's it is downsizing. I remember at the time, uh, I think it was Mark Dingwall that said this is a downsize this. This is downsizing. He was a hundred percent right because advocate at the time was probably maybe a ten hag kind of level. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe that. Yeah. Kind of, do you know what I mean? That maybe level of of manager that Rangers could go and get. But but two thousand one Rangers they don't have the money to do that anymore. And McLeish I think gets an unfair rap in his time at Ibrox. I think he does really well with with limited resources. He gets two teams sold out from under him. But it is a step down and. The club are just going in this downward trajectory to the point where in two thousand three, Murray has to cut costs. He can't bring himself to do it publicly. He can't bring himself to be the face of this complete transformation of the club. That they have to become a selling club. They have to change everything. He brings in John McClelland, who is a well-known cost cutter, and Murray can't bring himself to be the face of that bad period. No, absolutely. Downsizing as as a absolutely the correct term and um, obviously going into that Alec McLeish era I mean you know look, I, I love Alec McLeish I think he's I think he's as you say a very very underrated Rangers manager last Rangers manager to win a treble as well um, yeah. but it, it doesn't change the fact that and I, I think there's a lot of similarities between the Alec McLeish era and the Walter Smith second reign where it was cutting costs and stuff like that and I think really that the reason that those teams done so well was largely because of the man that was in charge of that group of players. Yeah. I mean, Alec McLeish, for someone, I don't think Alec McLeish gets the respect that he deserves. Never mind, you know, the trophies that he won at Ibrox, the fact that you look at Martin O'Neill Celtic, and that is Celtic's second best team of all time that we're yeah, talking about here. Absolutely. And um, the period that um, Martin O'Neill was at Celtic and Alec McLeish was at Rangers, Alec McLeish won more trophies than Martin O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Alec McLeish had Martin O'Neill in his back pocket, basically, despite the fact that Rangers were cost-cutting and Celtic were spending big money on on, on good good players. Um, but even just the fact that Alan McLeish had the sort of tumultuous to go into a, a squad that had done what they'd done under Advocate, obviously hugely successful, bar 
bar the one season, but that's a squad of Eagles, do you know what I mean? Like, top, top earners, top, top players, guys like Ronald De Boer and stuff like that who have won European Cups, played for Holland. And, you know, the fact that Alec McLeish can, you know, I, I don't want to go as far as saying he's a, dis- a disciplinarian because I don't think he kind of, I think a lot of, I think a lot of those players maybe like the fact that he was just a fresh face. He came in, he maybe allowed guys like the ball to express themselves a yeah. wee bit more that they maybe couldn't do under advocate towards the end. Um, you know, and I, I think that was a, just a fresh face. Someone that, you know, because let's face it, again, Advocat does have an ego. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think McLeish has got that that ego about him. He's got an aura, but he doesn't have an ego, in my opinion. And I think just maybe letting those players just sort of free to, to do what they do, not probably not putting them under any tremendous pressure because they were already under pressure and just letting them go and play their football. Kind of maybe a wee bit similar to what we're seeing just now at Rangers, possibly, but... Um, yeah, I think, as you say, very, very underrated manager. And it's around about this time, obviously, that Murray comes back in. He, he's told by the bank that he has to go in and do the big share issue where he tries to raise fifty million. It doesn't really. I think it raises a fiftieth of that, and he has to change the debt himself. He has to basically write off the debt from one company to sort out Rangers, and that was this thing. He, he could never bring himself to just sort his own problems out. He had to go to his his friends at the Bank of Scotland and that's he always seemed to have a have a way out in the bank I think the bank the bank situation at this point is out of control. And it is across the world. The world is just the people are getting loans because they were they they would see their they see the bankers and the the bankers with the same school as their children, do you know what I mean? Like they did it was the banker, the banker's son went to the same school as their son. It was just there was a lot going on at that point. It was just a crazy, crazy time in the world. But I think Le Guin is a very interesting time in the club because he does have to pursue Le Guin. He ha- Le Guin is not this advocate. I think was different because advocate wanted the job. Le Guin wasn't. Le Guin had to be persuaded to take the Rangers' job. And Murray, he loved these negotiations. He loved to do his deals. And at that point, Murray wanted to. He he. I think he wanted one last roll of the dice to see if he could compete at that European level. And mm-hmm. fair play to him, he, he goes out and and attracts a manager like Paul Le Guin, and Le Guin's a big name at this point. So he definitely does a he does a lot of groundwork to get that guy in. No, he does, and I remember at the time, as I mentioned earlier, just the excitement around the guy's appointment, and why why wouldn't you be? I mean. You know, the guy won, as I say, what, maybe three, three French leagues on the bounce for Leon. That Leon team were, were brilliant, you know, yeah. um, coming through guys like Jorinho and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, it, it was a time where you could kind of tell that, you know, French football, they'd had their way sort of, their period winning the World Cup and uh, the Euros and, you know, maybe fell off a wee bit, but you felt that they were maybe coming back with this. This, this just new team in Leon who... You know, they weren't a Marseille. Um, I know PSG were never really a massive club, mm-hmm. but they are based in Paris, obviously, so there is that element. But a team that, you know, for round about like the Swiss and French Alps, basically, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's not an easy place to get to. Um, and, you know, he's he's came in like when, I think he came in, did he not come in late because he was, he was, was doing, well, running the Sahara him. Desert? Yeah. Um, I I mean maybe maybe he ran all the way down to South Africa and that's where he found Dean Furman, I don't know. Um the but, Frank Lampard. I um if only, if only, but that it was it was an exciting time, you know, as I say, there was there was things around the club at the time, you know, J J B as I say that that redevelopment the, I brought the everyone memes. was but yeah, exactly. Um you know and Funnily enough, it, it it seemed to be at this point my money was kind of like, oh, should I maybe come back a wee bit? Mm. Yeah, it's like you know. You certainly saw a lot more of him in the public domain, and I yeah. think I think that's no coincidence because I think it it felt like the cat who got the cream he'd, he'd lured this top class manager into Rangers, and it was all him. And to be fair to him, it was he was, and I think it was a there was a personal thing as well. Obviously, Murray was 
I think he's he's got a holiday home in France. He's got a vineyard, obviously. Yeah, he can speak French as well. He's, he's I think he's fluent, fluent in French. Fluent French yeah. And I think it was there was a personal thing of that as well that he'd he'd lured out a man he knew. I think he'd managed to. I think it was friendly with Le Guin or whatever it was. But very quickly though, I think it's safe to say Paul Le Guin does not. Maybe like a a lot of foreign. I think we're maybe seeing it now with the Celtic manager. A lot of foreigners can come into Scottish football, and particularly with the two old firm clubs, and get instantly caught up in it in a good way. They can instantly take to it. Le Guin certainly didn't. No, he, he didn't. And I, I'm, I'm wondering what David Murray must have promised Paul Le Guin. It must, have, to... it must have sold him a tremendous bill of Aye, goods. because I think that's some of... <laughs> you don't know, what, maybe three million or something million. like that? Yeah, something I mean... Something like that we spent, I think... Sionko probably was the biggest outlay and got um probably Zebo. Ah, we'll see, but that's right, actually. I don't think Paul Le Guin goes into that summer. I don't think Paul Le Guin takes takes that job if he's getting told you're signing three players from Austria, Vienna Aye. and a thirty five year old goalkeeper. Aye. I sincerely doubt that. No, exactly. I think that I mean the best thing that came out of that transfer window was obviously Sasa Parpatch. Um but just, it kind of was like straight away. I mean, I remember the start to the season. I remember that game at Fir Park. And yeah. I remember watching it. And I thought we played brilliantly that day. Mm. Um, Sionko scored um pretty nonchalant goal. And you're thinking, okay, we conceded a goal and stuff. We had to come back to win the game. Um, but, you know, this, there was signs that there was a good team there. Then, I think the next game, you're at home, I think it was Dundee United. Um the fans made like a French flag display, and then like after sixty minutes or something like that, you're two 0 down <laughs> against Dundee United, who you know weren't very good that season. I think they ended up sacked. I think they brought in Craig Levine that season after yeah. sacking sacking the manager. So we come back from that one two each. There's a couple of games after that. I think where it's like draws, a couple of wins, and then. It's not until I think it's always the same, isn't it? We, we a lot of managers that come in. You don't know how good or bad they are until they play. They play Celtic. I think we'd we'd lost at Hibs a week before, but you know that you know these things happen. But I think that Celtic game where, ironically, Kenny Miller scores in it. Um, I think that's when people sort of start to say, because Rangers never showed up that day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was a complete whitewash by Celtic. Not a great Celtic team either, by the way, but I think you're thinking at that time there's really there's issues here. And then, you know, the next game is the one where, where Sebo scores the last minute winning against Aberdeen. And I think it is around this time where Le Guin actually goes to David Murray yeah, and says, absolutely. I want out, I don't want to be here anymore. And he actually says, in fairness to him, I believe, you know, I don't want a pay packet or anything yeah. like that. I just, I just want to go. But for no, whatever not. reason, David Murray somehow convinces convinces a guy to stay. And that's why I wanted to bring up managers and in, in a one in because I think the dynamic David Murray you only see with Graham Soonis, who he doesn't bring in. He's mm. quick. He, he tells Soonis, you have to go. You this time Your time is up. You have to go to Liverpool. You have to get out of here. The managers here points. It's Walter's, Walter's going at the end of the season. Dick's moving upstairs. Alex has got five games to save his job, doesn't win any of the five games, and he's staying. Mm-hmm. Le Guin, he has to persuade him to stay in the September. He eventually, he only lets him go because he knows he knows he can get Walter back in. It's not about what's best for the club, it's trying to save face for himself because he doesn't want to be seen as getting an appointment wrong. He, that, do you know what I mean? That's, that is yeah. what Murray does, and he has to eventually... Say to like Le Guin, the Le Guin Ferguson thing. I think there's probably a book could be written about <laughs> that whole thing because there's a lot of Ferguson doesn't Ferguson doesn't cover himself in glory. But Le Guin, when you're in a job and you very early on you you it's not for you. It's not what you thought it would be. You've been sold a pack of lies, which he was. He was sold a complete load of nonsense that. Yeah. You can't persuade that person to say, but it's to stay because they are not invested. Paul Le Guin was not happy in Scotland. He did not like the he did not like the way the the, the demands of Scottish football. You you have to go to Inverness and win. You can't go there and draw and then tell everybody in the dressing room that we must stick together. We must move on. We do you know what I mean? That it's acceptable. It's not. It's such a weird wee country we live in, and especially in the football sense, and you can't do that. 
and Murray Murray should have acted in the best interest of Aguen more than anything. He should have acted sooner and again he just doesn't. He just he tries to save face for himself. It's not until he has to basically get the situation sorted when it's become out of control and thankfully I think Walter Smith comes in. He Walter's able to completely steady the ship and I think that's the last time that Murray has the has a thought in his head of this is this is what I want. I think by this point he's just like mm-hmm. this. I'm done with this. I yeah. can't do what I used to do. I can't be the. I can't be the guy. I think a big thing as well as the media changed towards him. He did not have the control of the media. Mm-hmm. Celtic and fairness to them, they'd completely smartened up. They'd brought in uh, John Reed, who completely mm-hmm. changed, transformed the the way Lowell's obviously there as well. He was. Murray was warned, I've been told this recently, Murray was warned about what Peter Lowell, the impact he can have, shall we say, and he completely ignored it. And that by that point, his world has completely changed to the point where he's just scunnered and he just wants out. And that's the first time you hear of him wanting to sell up because at that point, he's bored. Yeah, and also as well, I don't think it's a coincidence that about a year or so later, the obviously the global financial crash happens yeah. as well. I think there's, a, there's an inevitability about what you know frivolous spending is going to end up doing to the biggest organizations because if you look back at that time some of the the organizations that went under yeah. you know northern rock even woolworths i mean you know we all miss going to the picking mix at woolies mm-hmm. but i mean it's like shops and stuff like that you never thought would go under you thought these places would be here forever He's and it was kind of yeah um just you know there was an inevitability about it if you had your head switched on. I think the problem with a lot of fans is, um, I don't, maybe not a, a problem, probably the wrong word. I think, I just think that football fans mostly look at things on the pitch. Yeah. Certainly they did back then. That is still mostly the case now, but I think nowadays, you know, because of, you know, the internet and stuff like that information is easily accessible about who's coming into your club, you know, about what directors do, about their, their tax visit, this, that, and the next thing. You, you know about people before they come in. Um, and I think fans now have a more vested interest into how their club is run as opposed to how how it goes on the pitch. But I, I did actually like your point there, which I never thought of until you made, Scott, about the whole sort of saving face for the managers and that, that theme, because if you think about it, if, if you're David Murray, you're turning around and saying, well, every time I had a bad patch, look at how we recovered. Yeah. You know, Advocat ended, well, Walter ended poorly. Bring an Advocat, we recovered. Advocat ends badly. Bring in McLeish, we recovered. McLeish and Le Guin ends badly. Walter comes back, we recovered. You know, so that is, that, that is something that he would probably use as well and try and say, well, you know, these appointments might have been failures, but look at how I, I recovered and turned that around. And yeah. maybe you're right, maybe the likes of, you know, he probably didn't get like going in until he, sorry, like going out until he realised that, that Walter would have came back, um, yeah. obviously doing a great job for Scotland at the time. Walter completely tr- transformed as a manager, and he has the, that, that's why we think of Walter Smith the way we do, and that's why we remember him so fondly, because he came in at the worst time. He came in when the club had to, I mean, his he does he does get Murray does back him the first couple the first eighteen months he he buys he buys a lot of good players he buys the squad that would go on and win the the kind of three titles in a row and get to a cup final he, he does get back he finds the money to back him somehow but Walter after that he's he doesn't have a big budget he has to it's shoestring it really is and yeah he does a marvelous job in that those those seasons. oh yeah. I mean, uh, incredible. Even even the the season that he comes back, that sort of f- second half of the season, you know, he gets the credibility of the club back. You beat Celtic twice, um, and you know you start to build a defensive solidity that we would see throughout the next sort of three and a half years, going into 07, 08, the the craziest season ever, really, in terms mm. of everything everything that went on, um, you know. And as you say, you know, he, did, he was kind of backed, I suppose, under some of with the signings. We never, I would say we never let anyone go, but I suppose at that time with that squad, I mean, who would you have sold for big money? And it's like, yeah. is anyone really going to be a loss? Um, but he, he did build the foundations for that 
that three in a row team and that team that ended up getting to Manchester and and that's something that I think I think is really important because we look at we look at moments in Rangers history and you know the Tifo that was there for the hundred and fiftieth game against Aberdeen the the third last one I, I think was uh, the, that picture on Archie Oval going up to the fans and, and celebrating in Florence um, which is you know etched in, in every Rangers fan's memory and it will be forever um, and it's mad that you know, people maybe think about something that only happened about nine months ago, possibly even eclipsing that. But yeah, um, that was an incredible, incredible season. And again, you know, for me, the only reason that Rangers get to Manchester is because of Walter Smith. The only yeah. reason that Rangers get three in a row is because of Walter Smith. Um, and one thing that I think is really special about Walter Smith is, you know, I'll use me and my, my dad as an example. My dad would have been in his twenties and the nineties. You know, can imagine how that must have been. You know, watching Rangers, the best Rangers team ever in your twenties and the nineties. Um, you know, so obviously the impact that Walter Smith would have had on him, it's not often that the same person, maybe twenty years down the line, yeah, has the same impact on on you. I think it's spot and on. like and you know, because. If you think about in football, we all hear sto- like stories from your dad, your uncle, your or whatever, right? You know about you know this guy was a great manager, that guy was a great manager, but then you actually got to experience that as well. And I think that's for me that's the most special thing about about Walter Smith is how I think he, he completely encapsulates at least two generations of Rangers fans, which just makes him immortal. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think you've absolutely nailed it there. And I, I, you said about you and your dad. I think me and my dad have that exact same thoughts as well. But the point Walter leaves Murray, Murray wants to sell up, and I think there's a. I think this is. I've got a weak theory about this, and I've spoken about this in previous shows. If David Murray sells in two thousand and seven when he first put the club up for sale, I think he comes back. I think he comes back when he knows the situation's out of control. I think he tries to ride to the rescue. But 2011, when he eventually sells up, he's he just he, he needs to he needs out. He's he's desperate to get out to preserve his business. And if David Murray had, if the Murray family, if Rangers was a, a Murray institution, like if the Murray family of generations passed had passed it along to to David Murray, I think he is a bit more cautious about it. Because mm-hmm. I think he would have thought that the the historical value and things like that. I think he was out of control, and I think the two thousand eleven the banking world had completely got him by the the short and curlies. He was he was he just needed to preserve his his empire. The bank he couldn't he couldn't even he probably couldn't send out. He could probably couldn't do the lottery mm-hmm. without the without Donald Muir having an impact on him. Do you know what I mean? Like I think there was there was that as well. But two thousand eleven though, he just he's he's willing to sell to anybody and to the complete destruction of Rangers, he does. And he sells it to Craig White. And I think Craig White is a, an interesting thing. And probably the next episode, we'll go into a bit more detail about Craig White, things like that. But the David Murray closure of this chapter for me, and I think we can wrap up at the David Murray side of it, this is why I can never forgive David Murray because he he always said when he was going to sell, he would sell to someone with the best interests of the club at heart. Mm. And to save face, he said he was duped. David Murray was not duped. No, of course he wasn't. It's it's Sir David Murray you're talking about. The guy he has a lot of things, but he's not an idiot. Um, no, he certainly hasn't. Um, so I think to come out and say something like that, you know, he's... To be honest, he's doing himself with the service there. If he, he's, he actually might have deluded himself into thinking that now because I mentioned it earlier as well. The guy, the guy clearly just didn't know when when the game was up. And you get, as I said, so many people in history, whether it's football, politics, whatever, they just don't know when their time's up. And eventually, that stains our legacy. Mm-hmm. And I think David Murray is one of the possibly the most interesting character in Rangers history because. He brings you the highest of highs, but he also takes you to the lowest of lows. And there's not many people in, you know, in life, never mind just football, that do that to you. But no, you're absolutely right. He, he was not duped off Craig White. No chance. And that's why I can't... The, the whole thing of, is David Murray to blame for the whole thing? Yes, 
because mm. he starts the train, he starts the train to it towards its destination of ultimate destruction, and he sells the club to he, he sells the club to a guy like Craig White and opens the club up to complete charlatans. And that's yeah. the David Murray legacy for me. Yes, he he was a big part of nine in a row. Yes, he brought in Paul Gascoigne and Brian Loudrop. Yes, Ibrox is a lot further forward in terms of stadium safety and things like that. Ibrox is one of the biggest stadiums in the world at this point. But it doesn't, you you can't, I mean, there's a lot of historical figures, there's a lot of public figures who would who want you to remember their high points, but they want you to forget their, their low points. I think it's it's the same here. David Murray would ask you to remember the, the, the good times, but you can't escape the the destruction. No, you can't. I mean, one thing that I find interesting about the whole, just going back on the duped um, comment, I mean, I think it was maybe October, November 2011, when the BBC done their documentary on Craig White, and I think that was the first time that the sort of public eye kind of went, well, wait a minute, this guy is, you know, a wee bit dodgy, to say the least. Um, Being careful with what we say. Um, yeah. But... You know, if the BBC can find that out within six months, and to be honest, the BBC probably already knew about it, and they were probably sitting on it and stuff like oh, that. Because the that's club how, knew that's about it. The yeah. club knew about it because to be, good... to be fair to Johnson, Bain, and the yeah, Bain, that's right. Alistair, Alistair Johnson turned down. They warned Murray not to sell yep. to him. Yep. So after all those warnings, and even even if that didn't happen, as I say, if the BBC are making this documentary and a few months of a white's tenure about I, I remember one woman you know who was a cleaner for him yeah and she she hadn't been paid for three or four months work it was something ridiculous like that um everybody knew that the guy basically took on companies that were struggling for money said that he was going to redo them and revamp them and stuff like that and he basically just stripped their assets and, and walked away with money for himself and and left everyone behind um if you're telling me that Chris McLaughlin, the BBC knew about that, then you're not trying to tell me that Sir David Murray didn't know that as well. Yeah, and it's a thing as well of saving... I think I, I think he probably has told himself that he was duped so often that he believes it. Yeah. Because I think there's... I think it's that word, ego. I think there's two overall... And that, that's, that's as... The, the David Murray chapter of Rangers is too long to <laughs> to talk about, but... There is two things. It's ego. It it starts as ego because he he wants to be he wants to be at somewhere that he can be the king. And Rangers needed a guy like that, and they did. And he gets a he gets to do it for so long. And by by the mid two thousands, his world had changed, and it's he it goes from being the king to just a just a bored guy, and he can't do what he used to do, and there's nothing worse, and you, we, we, we'll have been through that ourselves, like there's, when you used to be able to do all the things you could do, and then by a certain point, you just get to that stage where you're not allowed to, you're whether, do you know what I mean? It's, it must be hard, it must be difficult, and do you have any sympathy for David Murray? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I kind of find it hard to find sympathy for a guy who has achieved and, you know, gotten so much from life, you know, because I think the sympathy that he would be looking for is in terms of, well, you know, you know, I was duped, et cetera, et cetera. But that's kind of like your job to know if you're duped or not. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. why why would, it, like, what, is he wanting people to feel sorry for him because what, he didn't know what his job was like or something like that. I mean, that's like if, if you are um, a cleaner, say, for example, and you forget to take the bins out, or, you know, I'm really sorry, I was duped, I didn't know I had to take the bins out. It's like, well, it's your job to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, so I, I, I don't think sympathy is the word. I think, I think interesting and conflicting emotions behind it because, you know, again, the success on the pitch is, is there for, for everyone to see, but there is that, that overriding ending that you know does does impact his legacy. His, his legacy has tarnished. I'll say that you know it's not it's not anywhere near what he wanted it to be. And I think his his legacy, uh, you know, at Rangers is unfortunately tarnished by by what was about to come. It's been interesting. It uh, has been interesting going down all that again. Um, 
what we get away from it. It's weird because I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of stuff still not to be to be touched on, but I think you obviously there's there's so much to focus on later on and it's been it's been a weird, weird show. It has. Yeah, I mean it's it it has been I mean it's I've I've really enjoyed coming on and stuff. I think it's been a really good sort of open conversation. Um as you said at the start, just sort of letting it flow and I think when I think that's possibly the best way, Scott, because I think you find a lot of things in yourself that you maybe didn't know and yeah. you maybe bounce off each other. Um and you go, Oh yeah, I forgot about the Las Vegas Suns thing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I forgot about Philip Sebo, um, etc. etc. But no, um it's been absolutely fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. It has been a pleasure to talk to you as well. And the, the subject has been a, a strange one. We do have one episode left. We are going to take a look at the aftermath of the, the David Murray era and we'll do a wee Q&A as well. If you want to send your questions in for that show, please send it below in the comments or you can send us it through uh, social media, uh, SM Media's social media, you'll find it there. If you've got a question about this whole period, then please send it below and it would be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much to everyone that's tuned in. Thank you to Craig. It's been an absolute pleasure. No problem at all, mate. Pleasure's on mine. Thank you. And thank you very much. We will see you all soon. Cheers. <laughs>